You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Welcome to episode number 28 of Notes from Norwich. My name is Chris. I'm one of the three hosts of this show, but only two of us are here this week. Uh, I'm here with Marguerite. How are you? Well, thank you. Good afternoon. Um, Jan is not with us today. He has other stuff going on, so it's just the two of us. And we're talking about chapter 52. Uh, We're done with chapter 51, the long chapter about the servant and the the master. And now we're on to uh, chapter 52, which begins provocatively. And I saw that God rejoices that he is our father. God rejoices that he is our mother. Is that where we want to start? With Julian's use of this, of, of yeah. mother imagery? God rejoices that he is our true spouse and that our soul is his beloved wife. And Christ rejoices that he is our brother. And Jesus rejoices that he is our savior. And yes, Julian is famous for referring to God as a mother. He is also famous for referring to Jesus as a mother, although she doesn't do that specifically in this chapter. Hmm. Um, she sees Jesus as a mother, have his having given birth to the church, as it were, mm-hmm. and loving care for us is like a mother. And I think for me anyway, Julian, Julian's view of God, Julian's picture of God is so big and so all-embracing that, yes, that God is a father, God is a mother, God is a spouse, God is a brother, you know, God is everything. I just, I think it's interesting that she taps into these human relationships at the beginning of the chapter and, and doesn't really follow through with that in any yeah. In this chapter, and anyway, she, you know, brings brings things up a little later, but she just she just sees God as so completely encompassing that there is nothing that we can look at, nothing that we can experience on Earth, much less a relationship with a with a sibling or a parent or a spouse that doesn't have God in it. So back in, in, in the, the orange book that, that we use, the, the Paraclete Essentials edition of the Revelations, there's a, an introduction written by Father John Julian uh, of the Order of Julian of Norwich, which includes, uh, which mentions, well, Julian's mention of Christ our, our mother, Christ as mother. But, I mean, it applies as well to this section here about God as our mother, that Julian is not, Julian is often cited as one of those people who talks about the motherhood of God. But, and I just love the list that's here, it is a venerable tradition supported by Adam of Persain, Allred, Albert the Great, Anselm, Aquinas, Augustine, Bernard of Cluny, Bonaventure, Bridget of Sweden, Catherine of Siena, Clement of Alexandria, Dante, William Fleet, Gilbert of Hoyland, Guerric of Igni, Guigo II, the Carthusian, Helenand of Freudemont, never heard that person before, Isaac of Stella, Marjorie Kemp, Peter Lombard, Lond, Ludolf of Saxony, Marguerite of Oint, 
Mechtild of Magdeburg, Richard Rolla, William of St. Thierry, the Ancrene Rule, the Stimulus Amoris, and Holy Scripture itself. It's just <laughs> so right. pretty much a, a greatest hits. Right. Um, so it's, so Julian isn't alone in talking about God as mother or Christ as mother, obviously, but it feels startling to modern ears because this is, this, this somehow seems like it's maybe something that the Christian tradition forgot and has recaptured among progressive circles lately. We've got to talk about the, the gender fluidity of God or the genderlessness of God, which allows us to put all kinds of different descriptions on God. Um, but it's something that's been there all along. Um, but what it was in the past isn't necessary. This is also from the introduction. What people meant when they were talking about the motherhood of God in the past isn't necessarily the same as what we do with with gender and the names of God or pronouns related to God today, like so-called inclusive language in scripture. Um, and I don't know enough about either medieval usage of, of mother language for God, nor do I know enough about kind of inclusive language and gender issues with regard to God today to be an expert on that. Um, but I'm just laying it all out on the table <laughs> right here at the beginning. Is it helpful for you to think of God as mother? Marguerite? It isn't. Um, it isn't any more helpful than it is to think of God in any human relationship. Um, I, I have always felt that God, the father of the Trinity was female. Um, it just, it just feel that, that role, that person feels female to me. On the other hand, in modern liturgies and in modern chats, um, the Holy Spirit is more often referred to as a female with a, with female pronouns. I know I've always felt the Holy Spirit was a guy. So <laughs> I'm not really, I'm not really the right person to talk about it, I guess, because um, I just, I just have, uh, I don't cling strongly to either of those notions though. Um, I just, I think, though, that it's dangerous to abstract God so much that we take away any any personhood from God, mm. any any actual being from God. Um, I mean, I know that God isn't a person. I know that God isn't a being as we are. But I think if we if we 
think of God in such abstract terms. If, if we relegate God to more and more of an abstraction, that distances us from God. And I think when Julian talks in the beginning of this chapter about God as our father, our mother, our sister, our brother, our spouse, our savior, our friend, whatever, that that she is um she's helping us to to connect with God in a in a deeper way, in a deep way. And and I don't think she I mean I think abstracting God is is more of a modern thing than uh than it was in Middle Ages, probably with the beginning of um the age of enlightenment, I would say, is probably when people started wanting to abstract God, but I could be wrong about that too. Onward. I think it's it's very easy for us to to associate the roles of fatherhood, motherhood, um, brotherhood, sisterhood, or something to specific genders within a family. So you know. So we, we think that father means man or male and mother means female or, or woman um, because that's historically how human family relationships have worked out. That's kind of the name we give to the, the person who fills that role in our family tree. Maybe one of the helpful things about the modern day um, – critiquing that's going on that I still don't fully understand, but I, you know, I'm learning as I go about, um, the, fl- the fluidity of gender, the, 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 the disconnection of gender from physical characteristics or biological sex or anything like that. One of the helpful side effects of that is that maybe it, it encourages us to detach role from gender so maybe it's possible to say now, so if, if God is operating sometimes in our lives as father, what, what constitutes the characteristics of fatherhood when you take maleness away from it? And you just say, what is the role of a father within a family? Likewise for motherhood, you know, do you, do you, do you say, well, part of the, the job of a father within a family system is that kind of protecting, directing, setting, setting the rules, being the angry one? I don't know. You can project all kinds of stuff onto that. Um, the one who uh, mows the lawn and does the sports stuff. Well, you know, mother is the one you go to when you skin your knee. Um, but of course, that's all generalizations as well. And people have all kinds of relationships to their own actual fathers and mothers. It's very complicated. That features into this as well. But so I, my point is that maybe, maybe it's possible and necessary to think of fatherhood and motherhood and, and spousehood and siblinghood in terms of the characteristics of the role of relationship rather than the the biological specifics of the person who's filling that role, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Well, yes, it does, of course. But I think we know that that a child can go with a skin knee to his father or her father, and the mother can be the sports fanatic, <laughs> and the mother can be the bread breadwinner, <laughs> and the father can be the 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 knitter of hats and gloves. I mean, it, anything can, the father can be ten, that tenderhearted one. The mother can be the rule. And that, that's not just in modern times that goes all the way back into yeah. whatever. So I don't, you know, I honestly, I honestly don't know about roles specifically mother, father. So maybe that's, that's where to, you know, connect with this statement of Julian's. I mean, Whatever we think of, whatever I as a human being think of as a mother, being a mother myself and having had a mother, of course, um, I can attribute that to God. I can connect that to God. Mm-hmm. Whatever I think of as a father, having had a father, being married to a father, um, I can connect that to God. And it doesn't, it can be completely um, disconnected from from gender. It's just how I feel about motherhood how i feel about fatherhood i can i can see that in god so maybe taking the whole of this opening bit together where we re- where god rejoices that god is father mother spouse and brother and savior um it's simultaneously encouraging us to think of or to be aware of the fact that we have a relationship, a family tree style relationship with God, that it's not a, it's not a, an abstract legal contractual arrangement. It's a family tree relationship with God, but also that it is not like any of the other family tree relationships that we have. So, by comparison, if I say, well, God is my father. Well, yes, but also not just like my relationship with a father, my father or any father, that you've got to include father, mother, spouse, sibling in all of it, just to blow up your notions that you understand exactly what the relationship is. Just remember that it's familial, that it's, you know, you're bound by blood and fate. Close. Very close. Um, yeah. Couldn't um, be closer. Yeah. So it's like a family relationship, but not like any family relationship that you, <laughs> that you think you know about. So maybe that's what, um, what we're taking away from this. So it's that intimacy, but without being able to say, oh, yeah, I understand the nature of this relationship because it's something unique. There's nothing else like the relationship of the human being to the creator. There, we've, we've solved. All right. <laughs> we've yeah. solved that first few lines. All right. Where do we go from here? Do you want to talk about these five joys? Um. The five joys, where are we? These are five, at the top of page 135 in the orange book, these are five joys, as I understand. Oh, yes, okay, I see them. Um, Oh, well, no, actually, those five joys are the ones.
we've just talked about, but I'm confusing yeah. them with praising him, thanking him, loving him, and endlessly blessing him. But there's only four of those, so I've miscounted. I think what, I think what the rest of this chapter is dealing with is the is our um, dualistic existence. Okay. Um, we have well mean? and we have woe. We have two states that we are in at any given time. Um, and Julian goes on about this to quite an extent. She connects it with the two states of the of the servant who fell into the pit and then was rescued. Um, we have a state where we are in sin, where we are in pain, where we feel that we are far from God. And then we also have a state where we feel that we are one with God, where we feel that where we where we sense God's mercy and forgiveness and love and tenderness to us. And then almost without, you know, without even batting an eye, we can turn into the other one where we realize that we have fallen away, we have sinned, or we are in some kind of actual trouble, actual life kind of trouble, mm-hmm. illness, some pain. Um, you know, we slipped on the ice and sprained our wrist, but then we know that God is taking care of us and loving us. And she goes on about this, um, pretty much through the chapter. Um, and thus is this mixture so wondrous in us that scarcely do we know about ourselves or about our fellow Christians, how we hold out. (laughs) We don't know how we can manage this this back and forth life that we have. This back and these back and forth states that we have, and that's that's what she that's what she talks about. And thus, we remain in this muddle all the days of our lives. We do. So, what 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 is the nature of these two states? Are they just a natural side effect of living? Um, well, I think they're a natural side effect of a um, are being created by God and loved by God and being joined to God through that, and b Adam's fall. Hmm. So that is how that is how Julian talks about it. Um, <clears throat> she she sees that we have we have fallen with adam and so we are inclined to all the troubles that we have but we are also joined to god in love through creation and through god's being with us all the time and so so they are they are baffling to us these two states they are troublesome but they are also an extreme joy when when i guess when the coin gets flipped but what we have to know is that they are both from god they are both our existence that there is value in both of them that there is strength and beauty and holiness in both of those states But that's not saying that suffering is a blessing from God, is it? 
Yes, it is. Okay. That's one of those things we've talked about before is being something that might cause people to wrestle with it a little bit because we, you know, it is, it is, it's, it's counterintuitive in a way, but it's, but it is something that it is something that Julian holds to very, very strongly. So what do we, what new knowledge about God do we gain from, from this, uh, what, I don't even know what we call it, this kind of bifurcated nature of, of our experience? Because this is our experience, right? That right. we right. sometimes experience all these good things and sometimes experience all these bad things. Um. How, how can these both be demonstrations of the goodness and love of God? What she says is, in the Lord was shown, and I'm at the bottom of page 136, in the Lord was shown the compassion and pity for Adam's woe. And in the Lord was also shown the high nobility and the endless honor that mankind has come to by virtue of the passion and death of his dearest son, his dear worthy son. So we have those two things. We have Adam's fall and we have Christ's passion and sacrifice. Therefore, he, meaning God, powerfully rejoices in Adam's falling because of the noble rising and fullness of bliss that mankind has come to surpassing what we would have had if Adam had not fallen. And we know that from Adam's falling comes, comes all our sin, comes all our trouble, comes all our, our woes, our illnesses, our pains, our weeds in the garden, the sweat of our brow. All of that comes from Adam's falling had Adam not fallen, says Julian, we would not be able to be raised beyond that falling. So do you think that means that Adam's falling was inevitable? Like if God wanted us to come to our full glory, that seems impossible without Adam's falling being part yes, of the I agree. process. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's all part of, it's all one thing. I, I don't think Julian, and certainly I do not think that God created the world and then um, everything was fine and then Adam fell, Adam sinned. And so then God just had to decide what to do. What do I do now? Okay, I'll lock him out of Eden and I'll make him work and he'll do that and then Things went, you know, downhill, and then God said, okay, well, now I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son. I mean, I, I don't think God was making it up as he went along. <laughs> I think God had it all in hand from the very first moment. And I think that God still has it all in hand. And, you know, I, I know that people, 
And I have led a very happy life and compared with so many people that I know, a very trouble-free life. And I, so I know I'm speaking out of some, you know, ridiculous kind of good center privilege, you know, when I say this. But I think that everything that happens to everybody is is a grace from God somehow or another, whether it's realized or whether it's not realized. And that includes wrongdoing for me and for Julian. She will say that well, remember what she said when she and Jesus were talking and he was on the cross and he said, are you satisfied that I, that I suffered for you? And she said, yes, you know, Lord, thank you. I'm, you know, you are. And he said that if I could have suffered more, I would have. And that is because the love of God for us is so immense It's not conditional. It's not based on whether we're good or not. It's not based on whether we're saying our prayers or feeding our animals or shoveling our sidewalk or giving to the poor. It's not based on anything like that. It's just there. Always has been and always will be. And it's most visible in those times when it seems to lead to the self-sacrifice that results in suffering. Yeah. Greater love hath no man than this to lay down his life for his friends or something. Right. What is That's in the Bible somewhere. It doesn't mean that the suffering is the point. It means that the love is the point, and the the place where you see the love most clearly is in the willingness to endure suffering for love's sake. Yes. Hmm. This is on page one thirty seven. Um, right above the end of, well, right above reading 122. Uh, Therefore, the creature who sees and senses the working of love by grace hates nothing but sin. For of all things, as I see it, love and hate are the most unyielding and most immoderate opposites. Okay, so love and hate. What do we think about love and hate as being unyielding and immoderate opposites? Well, I think it, I think what she's saying is that is that it is our nature to hate sin and it's our nature to love God. And again, I, you know, I have I have been corrected on this by many people who will point to those somewhere in the world who seem to just love sinning. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I stand by, I stand by that anyway, because, because what people do, and let's talk about somebody and not, not naming any names, of course, but I mean, someone who is entrenched in an evil lifestyle, someone who is, uh, who cares nothing for other people, who gathers the goods and the riches to himself and to herself, who, who is harsh and unkind and bitter, mm-hmm. who seeks only pleasure for herself or himself. I, I can't believe that that person is loving their life. So I, um, I think that everybody hates sin and loathes it, but not everybody agrees on what constitutes sin. Like I think even the most wicked of people would still have that one thing where if they did it or if someone did it to them, they would, they would say that was sinful, that was harmful, and I hate it. Okay. Now, e- even though those people might do all kinds of other things that you and I might say, well, that's obviously a sin. It's obviously a sin. It's obviously contrary to the will of God. They might not see it that way, which is just, um, I've just been reading, you know, I'm taking a class on Ignatian spirituality. So I'm reading about disordered affections, mm-hmm. um, that, that it is natural for us to desire things, to want things, and to look at the world around us and to see that gap between the way it is and the way it could be. And that's natural, and it's good, and God uses it to good purpose. But the problem is that sometimes we have that perfectly natural desire, but for things that are not leading us towards God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and that's open to all kinds of interpretation, and that apparently is a big part of the work of the spiritual exercises, trying to figure that out. Figuring it out, yes. Um, but the that work of trying to figure out what brings you closer to the will of God or not, I mean, that's something that some of us are further along that path than others. But I think, I, w- I would think that Everybody has some sense of, you know, we, we might not all be seeing the same thing, but they, there is a point where you say that that is sinful, that is evil, that is wicked. Um, and maybe even some dawning comprehension in people who are pretty bad people. Maybe they are aware that they are participating in that. They certainly would know it if it was done to them. Uh, whether that's accurate or not is another matter. But you know, if you um, you know, if you're a drug dealer and someone rats you out, that's a violation of the code. That's obviously a you know a harm, a, a sin of a sort. Um, But it's a, it's a distorted moral code, maybe. But it is there's still that sense of there being 
right and wrong in the universe, even if it's very distorted, very twisted. And likewise, I think that except for people who are like true sociopaths, I think most people, the vast majority of people, even if they're acting wickedly, are convinced that they're doing the right thing. Like all those people who invaded the Capitol on January 6th, I'm convinced that if you were to sit down to ask them why they did what they were did, they would tell you earnestly that they thought they were doing the right thing, what's best for the country. Um, uh, and that's obviously a testament to to what happens when you let humankind's reason get a hold of justification. We can come up with any explanation we need to justify ourselves. But still, there's that gradation, that sense of right and wrong. And we want to be, to believe ourselves, to be, um, at least more often than not, on the right side of that line. Maybe that's a sweeping generalization. And half an hour from now, I'll disagree with myself. I don't know. Um, I think that people can grow in their understanding. I mean, you were talking about, you know, discerning of, of spirits and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And the, the Ignatian um, path. And I think that people can grow in their understanding of their own inclinations and behaviors. I mean, I, yes, definitely. I can certainly testify that I have come from one place to another place, and I'm hoping to even go to other places. Um, I mean, just this is very personal, but just last week, I uh, realized that something that I was doing, a reaction that I was having with someone was wrong, hmm. was, was sinful. I mean, not sinful in the sense of like drug dealing or, you know, shooting people and, but still. And so, and so this is, you know, this is the, I mean, we're all on that path. We're on that path to glory. We're all on that path to salvation, to sanctification. And wherever anybody is on that path, whatever sins they are involved in, whatever sins are have hold on them, that is keeping them from real joy, real grace, real delight. Um, even if they're laughing and happy and, and, you know, dancing all around and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's still keeping them from, and yet, and then, then there's somebody who, you know, realizes what they have been doing wrong and breaks down in thousands of tears and they look very sad, but they are actually very happy. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so I back to Julian. This double, <laughs> double stretch that we are in. This, this these two states that we're in. Um, she admits that this is a very frustrating, um, a very frustrating thing, but she acknowledges that because God is with us through all of them. God is not, cannot be separated from us, will not be separated from us. 
that God is with us, all of them, that we can we can find God in either of those states and be glad about it. And clearly when that happens, then we, you know, then we move into the mercy state. But being fallen creatures, we're never going to be able to be there in this lifetime all the time, 100%. But there's always the potential for upward movement. So it's like either... We're already sitting on the throne, and that's cause for grace, or we're being lifted up onto the throne, and that's cause for yes, salvation. exactly. So either either one, you know, we're all celebrating a, a birthday party, or we're getting ready to celebrate a birthday party. It's right. it's all two different positive sides of the same coin. Yes, um, two sides of the same coin, both of which are. Good. <laughs> well, what else is there to say about chapter 52? Well, we can uh, we can wrap it up. Julian stresses that we do not have control over these things that we're that we're we do not have full control over our our states that we're always going to we're always going to fall and we're always going to rise oh. um the blessed love now has us in a double action she says for in the low for in the lower part are pain and suffering, compassions and pities, mercies and forgiveness, and such other things that are beneficial. But in the higher part are none of these except the same high love and overwhelming joy in which overwhelming joy all pains are wholly destroyed. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the Revelations of Divine Love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.